In 2016, just after finishing my master's degree, a classmate of mine, Sheila, suggested I write a book. Now, I'd heard the suggestion before many times from well-meaning friends and family, but there was something earnest and needful in Sheila's tone when she exhorted me. So I got busy. I just started writing and writing and writing, and really it was more like gathering information and taking notes, trying to make disparate bits and pieces fit together here and there. But it wasn't anything like a formal manuscript. I was just getting down ideas on paper. Ideas that just kept coming at me as though they were a torrential downpour falling from the heavens. I wrote nearly every day for two years. The document that it has since become contains over 3,000 pages and over a million words. Little did I know at the time what the significance of any of that would be. In 2017, in the midst of all of this writing, I was looking for a location to host a really unique event. I had never done anything like this before, but through my master's degree program at Houston Baptist, I met a Hubble Space Telescope astrophysicist and had an inspirational idea to have him give a presentation about the wonders of the universe as seen through Hubble discoveries. But it wasn't just the Hubble Space Telescope that I had in mind. I also thought it would be a fascinating idea to have my thesis advisor, C.S. Lewis scholar Dr. Michael Ward, give a talk about Lewis's cosmological imagination in the Chronicles of Narnia alongside the presentation about Hubble. Little did I know things were about to take off like a rocket. So I sort of jokingly ran it by both Michael and my Hubble friend to see if they would be interested or at all able to do it. And to my surprise, both very busy gentlemen agreed. But the task of putting it together fell on me. I had never done anything like this before in my life. So eventually, I enlisted the support of many friends, and we were able to raise the money as well as find a local seminary willing to host it. The Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Fortuitously, I just so happened to reach out to Dr. Paul Gould through email about the event. He loved the idea so much, he invited me to the seminary to discuss it over coffee with him. Now, Paul and I had never met, but through his efforts and those of Evan Leno at the Land Center, the event was a stellar success. We called it Astrophysics and Fantasy, Hubble Meets Narnia. Over 200 people came, some from Chicago, my friend Sheila, and some from far away as California, just for the event. It was a huge success beyond my wildest dreams. But during the planning stages of the event, Paul suggested to me that he and I collaborate on a book project about it. Mind you, Paul didn't know me and had never read a single word of my formal writing except my endless streams of emails to him. At the time, I had no job. I had never been published. I was not looking to be published, necessarily. Had no formally prepared manuscript, just my huge documents of notes and quotes that I mentioned earlier, and had several academic journals turned down several of my submissions. I also had no literary agent. So given all that, I actually turned down Paul's offer to do a book. I didn't think he was serious. I just thought he was being nice. He certainly was, 
but he was also dead serious. Maybe this is your opportunity, Dan, he told me. So I finally agreed. To my surprise, Paul told me he could get a hold of Dr. William Lane Craig, a preeminent Christian philosopher and apologist. And through contacts I had through Michael Ward at Houston Baptist, between Paul and I, we asked several people if they were interested in contributing an essay. Everyone we asked said yes, and rather quickly. So Paul and I sat down in his office one afternoon and drafted a two-page proposal. Paul then, acting as a literary agent, contacted three publishers over the course of about six months. The third one, Harvest House, gave us a contract, just on the proposal alone. So here I was, a never-before-published author with a contract from a major publishing house, and I didn't even have a manuscript. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I give you a few more stories behind the story of the cosmos and how we see everything fitting together. Jane Austen, ballroom dancing, black holes, binary stars, exoplanets, creation ex nihilo, Tycho and Kepler, philosophy, fine-tuning, and even why we have an art history teacher in our project. So come and see some of the stories behind the story of the cosmos on this episode of Good Heavens and see how it all points to the glory of God. Hi, Dan. We are back. We're back, ready to go with Good Heavens. We have uh, the June edition of Good Heavens. It is uh, officially summer. And as of yesterday, uh, yesterday was the 21st. Yesterday was the longest day of the year. The sun was, there was, uh, in most parts of the world, every, all over the place in the northern, northern hemisphere, was the longest amount of daylight okay. uh, in the world because the sun, it is its highest peak. Uh, at the summer solstice. And now what is really cool and exciting for me, because I like fall and winter, is the sun is headed back toward its southernmost point. Fall is on its way and soon winter. So, yay! Uh, okay, <laughs> but in, in Texas it doesn't feel like fall yet. <laughs> no, te- we don't get... We're just getting the heat. We, yeah. we won't get cooled off until no, until Thanksgiving. That's, <clears throat> That's usually, right. right. It'll get, uh, it'll get hot. But anyway, uh, summer solstice yesterday, the... The sun is now on its way back down to its southernmost position, and we'll be halfway down at uh, the vernal equinox, which is fall, so all of that. Right. Uh, but yeah, yesterday was the first day of summer, and uh, and here in Texas, we are feeling that, right? Muggy, soupy, gulf weather, yeah. humidity, heat, and uh, just go outside and go swimming <laughs> kind of weather. <laughs> well, we have something coming up. We're glad it's summer, because this summer... Uh, our book is coming out. We've been chatting about it for a few minutes here and there on the various different podcasts that we've had over the last several months. But now we're going to dedicate an entire Good Heavens episode to what this book is about, a little backstory, a little chit-chat about what we like about it, um, when it's coming out, and what's going on with it, and what this book is, and how you can get one, and everything. All the backstory that you could possibly want, all the neat little details, the stories behind the story of the cosmos. <laughs> That's right. Not every story, probably. We won't have time to talk about everything that went into this. 
But uh, we can certainly make it interesting for you. So this will be a podcast. Uh, join us for the next few minutes in talking about the story behind the story of the cosmos. So you're a first time for you too, Wayne, in a in a published, uh, big publishing house book? Uh, well, not the first time in the book. There's another book that I wrote a chapter in. Uh, it was a book about various scientists who had kind of changed their view on origins. Oh, okay. And it was called Persuaded by the Evidence Ah, uh, a number of years ago. But um, this is published by Harvest House, and that was published by a, I don't even remember now, it was a, a smaller publishing company. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it, wasn't, it wasn't known that very much. Okay. But anyway, um, this book is a unique kind of book, I think. It has a unique mix of the kind of authors that have contributed to this, Dan, as you know, and I mean, we have one who's an English professor and one who's a history has a history background. Who is actually someone from Harvest House, yeah, Terry Glassby, who actually wanted to get involved in the book project. That is probably one of the more interesting backstories <clears throat> yeah. behind the story that I think is just it's wonderful, it's funny, it's cool. So, short story on that: Wayne is talking about Terry Glassby, and Terry is an adjunct professor of art and theology at Kilns College in Bend, Oregon. And he's the author of numerous books, including an award-winning book entitled 75 Masterpieces Every Christian Should Know on Baker, uh, published in 2015. He holds a master's degree in history from the University of Oregon and is a frequent lecturer at uh, universities, churches, and conferences on the relationship between the arts, spirituality, theology, history, and history. And he blogs at uh, Terry Glaspie, G-L-A-S-P-E-Y dot com. But Terry, uh, he's not just a contributor. He was the one at Harvest House to whom we took our formal proposal. Uh, when Paul Gould, our chief editor, was Paul and I had put a proposal together. And Paul, uh, because he's published, he went around knocking on publishers' doors. And Harvest House was the third publisher that we tried to contact. And... Uh, Paul contacted Terry, and Terry liked the project so much that he asked Paul if he could join us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. Not only did we get the contract, <laughs> the guy that was giving it to us, the gentleman that was giving it to us, wanted to be a part of the project. Yeah, it's a pretty good sign. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that you know that uh, it's going to be all right when that happens. But uh, we should give a shout out because we have uh, some good sisters who have just put out a book called Mama Bear. Apologetics. That came yes, and I got my copy, and I'm beginning to read it. That came out in June officially, and mm-hmm. by Hillary Morgan Farrar. Farrar, I, Farrar, I Farrar think is, is how yes. she pronounces her last name. But uh, one of our friends, uh, Lee and Rebecca. Rebecca has contributed a couple of chapters to yes. that, and she's been on our podcast before. And so that's actually how we found out about Harvest House and Terry through Rebecca and Hillary. And their book. And Terry was the overseer of, of the Mama Bears book. So Terry Glaspie was the project person for Mama Bears and, and well as well as us. And so Lee, <laughs> Lee jokingly calls you and I the cosmological bears and uh, Rebecca and Hillary the Mama Bears. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I'd like to say a little bit about that book because it's aimed specifically at issues that parents deal with in how to how to get across a, a Christian view of things to their kids, mm. and what are some ideas that come from our culture 
the parents need to kind of be on guard about. Yeah, it's a great uh, how to deal with that. I have I have to get it, but I it it uh, it sold really well on the first day that it came out, and I've heard nothing but good on online about it. Um, but yeah, that's the chief thing that it. This is for busy families. Um, that Hillary and and her team has a has a very uh, good gift of being able to distill mm-hmm. complicated ideas down to the to the level that that uh, you can communicate to your children. So it's not just for moms, but for families and teens going off to college or anything. It's it's a great resource. But we are proud to be uh, associated and sort of team team apologetics with. Uh, Mama Bear Apologetics. We are Story of the Cosmos, Mama Bear Apologetics. If you're going to buy a book on Amazon, buy two. <laughs> That's right. It's going, you kind of get a big, the, the nice rounded picture right, of things. Right. It's the having, they, they round each other and complement each other. Right. So, so that the, the heavens and the earth. So we got the heavens above us. And That's then the, right. Then the Mama Bears take care of what's going on down so here. You know, want so. your head in the clouds, you read our book. You yeah. want your feet back on the earth, you read theirs. <laughs> so kind of like that. Well, and you know, that's an interesting way to look at it. I, we're kind of joking about it, but... Uh, <laughs> Before the, we started the podcast, you had brought up a, a good point about um, if you let's say you go to a bookstore or a library, where are you going to find the story of the cosmos? What section do you think you would find this in, Wayne? <laughs> yes, you had some good thoughts about that. Uh, well, yeah, is it is it an apologetics book or is it something else? Uh, you know, when you look at the authors, they're uh, of a variety of backgrounds. You know, we have a a Tolkien scholar, uh, Dan and Holly Ordway, you did a podcast with her, mm-hmm. which was a very popular program when we did that podcast. Yeah, and we had a great chat. Then we did a you did a podcast with Michael Ward. He's a Oxford scholar, mm-hmm. and uh, on C.S. Lewis, we've got C.S. Lewis, we've got Tolkien, and uh, so we have those kind of backgrounds, and that's different, you know. That, those are known about apologetics, but this is a different angle of the, of the stuff that Michael Ward deals with mm-hmm. is kind of lesser known stuff from C.S. Lewis yeah. about dealing with astronomy and science. And then uh, some of it is uh, more of a human side, uh, sort of a human angle on apologetics. Like my chapter, for example, is about two astronomers from long ago. Yeah, and why why deal with them? Why, yeah, who why cares? Are, why are they important? They, yeah, this is the, the late fifteen hundreds and early sixteen hundreds, and I think that their example shows us a lot of interesting lessons that uh, God used them in their time in history. So this is Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler. Tycho Brahe was. Uh, born, I think, something like 20-some years after the death of Martin Luther. Mm. And so both of them were in the region that was very influenced by Martin Luther. Mm. And and uh, Kepler, Johann Kepler, had a Luther Bible, uh-huh. which, which he jealously guarded and yeah. protected. He was devout Lutheran his whole there was, life. There was one point where he was being thrown out of a city, and he had he made arrangements with a friend to go into his stuff because they were in the process of burning his books. Oh my goodness! And the, he got a friend to go in and find his his Luther Bible, and there was another uh, some kind of Bible study resource. It was like a Bible language study book of some sort. I don't remember what it was. And he had so he had to pick out two books to save. 
and he get him he had his friend get those two things so he wow. really valued scripture yeah and he was very capable of studying genesis or, or the bible in uh, greek or hebrew he knew the languages not just mathematics yes yeah and that's a you know your your chapter of course i've as one of the co-editors paul and i read everybody's chapter um the editing process was an eye-opening process you get your stuff cut changed and that's mm-hmm. like ah oh. Yeah, that's kind of painful. <laughs> it's like, ooh, there really? were things I hated removing. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but we had a uh, we had a certain word limit we had to kind of meet. And mm-hmm. um, I remember Paul when he edited mine. He's like, "Damn, we got to cut about two thousand words." What? I'm not cutting anything. No, this is. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't react well to my first edit. It's like my first haircut when you're when you're in kindergarten. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, you just crying and the razor's going over your head. You're like, ah. Well, but you know the the publisher has to do that. They have a they have a budget for these things. Absolutely, they have to pay for every page. But uh, getting back to the to the unique category. Um, that the well the categories that uh, is in our book. So we just to go down the list here really quickly. Um, there's Melissa Kane Travis. She's now a doctor. She's an apologetics, and her, her she also loves uh, Johannes Kepler, and her chapter is on the intelligibility of nature, a glorious resonance. Nature resonates with intelligibility. So Melissa has a very insightful chapter on that. Mm-hmm. We have from the Vatican. The Vatican astronomer, uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno, and he writes about what he likes. He actually takes us into his lab and walks us around and tells us. It's like he's having a conversation with us in his laboratory as he's showing us rocks and meteors. It's very down to earth. Like, right. You know, like meteors are down to earth, right? Yeah. Meteorites. But he, I really like that chapter. He uh. it's, it's, it, it's, it's so wonderfully accessibly written. You're just like, I want to go be an astronomer with Brother Guy. It makes you want to go <laughs> see him in his lab and talk to him. Yeah. You feel like you are talking to a friend. And then we have a, a well-known planetary astronomer, that uh, Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez. And his contribution is really kind of wonderful because as we were, we actually in the process lost one or two contributors. And so Paul and I were scrambling to find one or two more. And I literally, I've never met Dr. Gonzalez. I'd never had any interaction with him prior to this, but he did have a public email. And I emailed him and I asked him if he wanted to be a part of the project. And he said, yes. And I just like that. And he does a wonderful job of talking about exoplanets and mm-hmm. habitable zones. The, mm-hmm. the word I can never pronounce, habitable, habitable, habitable. <laughs> uh, but he talks about it because there's a huge science dedicated to, to the Earth-like planet right. issue. Right. And, and he does a good job of, of demonstrating that when you hear Earth-like planet in the headlines, it's more of like you know, taking a grapefruit putting an NBA label on it and calling it a basketball. (laughs) Because there are so many things that have to be uh, in order for a planet to be Earth-like. Right. And so basically when you hear Earth-like, what you're you're hearing is, uh, well, this, this planet is about the same distance from its parent star as we are from ours. Mm -hmm. Maybe it has the same circumference or mass. But that's about it. Right. That's about it. So uh, Guillermo, he talks about aliens. He talks about, well, what would be the implications if we find life? And is there life out there? And what's a habitable zone or habitable mm-hmm. zone? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great chapter because this is cutting-edge research right now. We want to find – and the whole idea – and you know this, Wayne. The whole idea – what's the, what's the spirit behind Earth-like planet hunting? 
well, if we find an Earth-like planet, what's that mean for, for religion, right? Almost like it, they go right to the jugular. It's like, oh, look, if we find life, we're going to prove we're not special. Right, but what the scientists continue to work on this question of what would be a habitable planet, and they find more and more barriers to life on these other planets and other systems. So it just shows more and more how special our own planet and our own solar system is. Right. I think uh, one of our other contributors, Dr. Sarah Salviander, I know I'm friends with her on Twitter, um, she posted an article that had uh, showed how unique these extrasolar planets and their systems are to the extent that it's basically cut in half. I think that's what it was. I may be wrong in that exact percentage, but it basically reduced the number of possible places where carbon-based life could exist Mm -hmm. assuming the laws of nature are everywhere the same in the universe for for argument's sake uh the places where you could find carbon-based life like ours has Mm. been significantly reduced yes there's just too many variables that need to be in place for carbon-based life to thrive so that's dr salviander sarah salviander she does a whole chapter now what was fantastic is that sarah wrote this chapter last year for us um, and then just this past year in April, what did uh, the center of Messier Object 87 do? It smiled for the camera and showed the world its center, its black hole. Then a black hole the first time a, around the peripheral of a black hole had been photographed. Mm. And so now there was all this frenzy in the world about, oh, a black hole, a black hole. Well, now here comes Sarah's chapter almost like God was preparing her (laughs) to write it, Mm -hmm. uh, explaining the history and the hunt for these giant celestial megaliths that Mm -hmm. uh, that has gone on since World War II and Mm -hmm. how Sir Arthur Eddington just didn't like the idea of space-time fabric having an endless wormhole in it. You know, the collapse of a neutron star led to the mathematical absurdities (laughs) of an infinity. You know, it was just like, let's not bother looking for that because it just stretches the imagination. All right. You, you know, there's there's a surprise element in, in science that, that we should not, uh, we should welcome it. We right. shouldn't hate it. Right. This is, comes up in my chapter too, Dan, in yeah, the book, yeah. because uh, no one at in the time of Kepler, no one expected that the planet orbits would be ellipses and not perfect circles. Right. Everybody had this concept of this circular orbits is perfect. God made perfection, so they have to be circular orbits. Mm-hmm. But that argument doesn't work. No. And and so it was through all years of longhand calculations going over the data that Kepler finally figured out they're not really circles. They're eggs. Yeah, well, they're egg they're shaped. not egg shaped either. Actually, they're sort of. They're neither. Yeah, they're neither. They're so ellipses, yeah. and an ellipse is not the same as an egg. No, but, I. But it's just not what people expected. Right. I always God, picture, God surprises us in what He made. Right. I always picture an ellipse as a as a as a hard boiled egg cut in half. You know, and the the yellow is the sun. And then the, the yellow white is the sort of the ellipse. <laughs> it's not exactly. It's a rough picture. It's a yeah, rough, that, that's a visual if you yeah. want it. It's a visual. Um, but yeah, the what's funny about well, not funny, but what's really curious about what you bring up, all of this research that see, Bra was the uh, <coughs> observer. He did all the observational calculations. You you provided a really cool picture of what his apparatus looked like, but but this is before the advent of the the telescope. Right, and that picture that we have in the book of Bra and his measurements, that's been published many places. Yeah. But people don't know what it's 
really doing. And then you, so I took. I have a long caption to that. Yeah. And I wanted to really explain it. It's very helpful. So th- this is before telescopes. So how how do you figure out the orbits of the planets without using a telescope? Mm-hmm. This is not easy. So you so uh, Tycho Brahe came up with all these various devices that were kind of large. They have to be large. Uh, in order to get accuracy from the with the naked eye, mm-hmm. he had to use naked eye measurements, and he got assistance. He had some of his devices were large enough that it took multiple people to do this and get yeah. the measurement at in, at the right time. Right. You see? So he had, he did this for years. He had assistance that became good at this, and then uh, eventually. After it was mostly after uh, Tycho Brahe was gone and, and after he died that uh, Johann Kepler took over that data and, and made sense of it. So Kepler did the mathematical side of stuff to work out the the, the significance of it. So and, you needed uh, yeah. your your chapter shows a great example of and it, and it kind of fits an overall sub theme in this book, mm-hmm. um, a dance. Yeah, we have a we have throughout the book a kind of theme of things going together, mm-hmm. pairs of opposites, if you will. Um, and you have the most. Your chapter, in fact, is called the glorious odd couple. The gloriously odd couple, couple of astronomy, yeah. and and it's they are. Kepler was a really short guy. Tycho was more like a Chewbacca. Yeah, if you want want the chapter to be more fun, watch the old Odd Couple movie before you watch. There you go. Read the chapter. Oh, it's like a Chewbacca and R two D two or something. It's, uh, bombastic and furry and fuzzy and loud and half a nose, and then yes. Kepler was quiet and squeaky and <laughs> sneaky and very smart yeah and it was just an odd couple but but you need the the coupling of these two gave us uh, the the orbit of the thir- three laws of planetary motion that mm-hmm. that are still solidly in place as fundamental constants of our universe right these things that kepler's ideas that he published in the early 17th century uh they hold yeah and uh dan kepler wrote a lot about his faith he originally started college thinking he was probably going to be maybe a pastor or maybe a seminary professor or mm. something like that. Mm. And he would have been a good one. Yeah. But he was steered away from ministry because he took certain controversial points of view that the, the Lutheran church didn't like. Mm-hmm. And um, so eventually uh he he goes in into mathematics more he does he really works more as a mathematician yeah and that put him into writing uh things that are mathematical and calendars and stuff mm-hmm. but anyway he wrote a lot about his faith and uh there's some wonderful quotes of kepler in the in the ch- in my chapter yeah you conclude with uh, one kepler kepler uh made these comments about exploration and it's, I think, a wonderful uh, kind of counter. You know, your chapter at the beginning, the introduction, uh-huh. starts talking about Carl Sagan and yeah, uh, the materialism, uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh-huh. who these guys are wonderful explanation. They do a wonderful job of explaining science. Excellent communicators. Of Very communica- good in communicating science, but they have a kind of uh, agnostic or atheist World point view. of view. Mm-hmm. So... Kepler was very unlike that, and you'll see the the opposite of that point of view from Kepler. Yes, yes, and that's why I really like. He really he gives a very healthy 
way of looking at things in science and astronomy. Yes. And speaking of pairs, there's another, probably a much lesser known pair of people mm. uh, that I briefly mention in my introduction. Um, again, this, this goes with dancing. And so what it's interesting, my chapter, I had the challenge. So Paul and I decided that I was going to read all of the chapters and do all the editing of everybody else's chapter. Mm-hmm. Then I was going to write the introduction based on everything that I read. So the fun thing that I did, and this was thank you to Michael Ward and Holly Ordway for helping me see imaginatively. I read everybody's chapter. And instead of writing an introduction that said, in Wayne's chapter, Wayne will talk about this. In mm-hmm. Dr. David Bradstreet's chapter, he will talk about this. Mm-hmm. In Michael Ward's chapter, he will talk about this. I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I actually wove everybody's chapter together sort of seamlessly in a story. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily introduce the chapters in a row, but what I wrote, I wrote in a way that fits all the chapters together. Yeah, that's a beautiful introduction. And then yeah. when you go into the story... I've already given you the groundwork to see how this all fits together because I did that. I mm-hmm. took all the chapters and I fit them together in a narrative. And that's what the story of the cosmos is. From the heavens and the earth, it is one grand narrative of Jesus who has created it and sustains it. And uh, so I learned to write like Lewis from, not that I'm even comparing myself to Lewis, but I learned the techniques of studying Lewis, how he loved to write on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. So he could take one thing, he could take the literal meaning, and then he could take the the deeper meaning, and he could write in such a way as to to, to be obvious, but to be hiding in plain sight. So I've, I so I did that chapter. But anyway, I wanted to share with you the other pair of astronomy that that I mentioned is William Herschel mm-hmm. and his sister uh, Caroline, mm-hmm. which is the female version of Charles. Um, but they worked together as lay astronomers in the English town of Bath. Now, we mm. Americans say Bath. I'm sure the English say Bath. You know, mm. have an English accent. It's Bath. Bath. But, but Bath, if Bath, if you uh, read Jane Austen, what is Bath? Are you familiar with Bath? I don't know if you read Austen. You Not don't really read familiar. Austen. Okay, no. so Jane Austen fans will know that Bath is the resort town where there's a lot of ballroom dancing and a lot mm. of Jane Austen's characters mm. will go to Bath for a holiday like people go to Branson, Missouri or Las Vegas. You know, it's one of those uh, vacation spots where you could have a spa go to the, you know, the hot water things or whatever, and you can have ballroom dancing. William Herschel was actually a composer of music for ballroom dancing at, uh, in Bath. But when he wasn't composing music, he and his sister Caroline were observing the heavens. So there's a theme here of dancing with astronomy in <laughs> William Herschel and his sister Caroline. Now, the William Herschel name may not be as familiar to people as Kepler mm-hmm. or Bra mm-hmm. or Einstein or Newton, but Herschel discovered he's the first astronomer credited with discovering binary stars Mm. and through 848 observations of double stars through his own telescope he was the first to demonstrate the gravitational orbiting of two binary stars and of course we have dr david bradstreet who is a binary star expert and uh, so I have a little wordplay here with before there was Dancing with the Stars, uh, you know, there was William Herschel and Caroline. The Dancing Stars. Who were writing music for, <laughs> who are looking at yeah. Dancing Stars. And then David Bradstreet's chapter is called A Glorious Dance of Binary Stars. Right. And so there's this theme of, of twos going mm-hmm. on. And one of the things that I find most remarkable about Dr. Bradstreet's chapter is how he explains, not only how he can explain what he does in a very common language, but how these binary stars, some of them actually touch 
And and mm. a lot of examples that he gives, what can happen is that one star exchange the, the stars will exchange their material, and one of the stars will go supernova. In in these, and I don't know all the science. I'll have to reread his chapter. I can't explain all the science. But in these contact binaries, one star will give up its matter for the other star. And uh, I thought that was sort of an, an interesting, you know, it reminds you of what Jesus has done for us as the light of the world, giving right. his, giving Himself our His righteousness to us. But so there's that. There's 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 William and Caroline. There's there's you and me. Uh, you know, there's 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 man and woman that the, that the heavens and the earth, this coupling, this dance between the heavens and the earth, between God and man, that that goes on repeatedly. But that. And, and what yeah, there's and there's some chapters that complement each other very nice. Uh, I think uh, Melissa Kane Travis chapter and my chapter go together nicely. Yeah, but there's another one that I noticed this uh, the uh, chapter on uh, fine tuning of the universe by Luke Barnes and Alan Hainline. Yeah, that complements with uh, Paul Gould's chapter. Yes, because Paul makes the point: is not only is is the universe and our planet made for life to survive but it's made for us as human beings to thrive right it's not just bare survival it's i need beyond what's necessary yes that's an excellent <clears throat> point paul gould uh, dr paul gould is a philosopher mm -hmm. uh, and he's published several books along with william lane craig and he actually has a book out right now cultural apologetics that just came out mm -hmm. and he's on a whirlwind tour talking about that but paul's a philosopher and he and i uh we we i sort of pointed him in the direction of the way he wanted to go with his chapter in terms of astronomy but Paul makes the excellent point that uh, if this is not just uh, survival. I'm not just building a campfire and drinking water and hunting squirrels. Right. Um, I, I have the ability to contemplate and, and to meditate and uh, to enjoy beauty and to, to the aesthetics of this world mm -hmm. from a purely survival mode makes no sense. Right. This is beyond minimalistic surviving, which is basically the doctrine of natural selection is just species. Everything is described in terms right. of a species surviving. But but if that's true, natural selection doesn't have that purpose. That's just how we've interpreted it. Well, beauty isn't necessary to survive. Mathematics aren't. We don't. Yeah. We don't need mathematics to survive. I mean, if if they weren't around in primitive times, you know, if if natural selection is true, what does a math problem have to do with with somebody hunting rabbits or something? They don't know they're doing math. But right. this idea that we've discovered mathematics and then mathematics is in tune as Melissa says, resonates. Yeah, so I, like in, in uh, I think it's in my chapter, there's a, there's a picture of a supernova. Yes. And this is a supernova that Tycho Brahe discovered. Mm -hmm. He could not get a picture like we can do now. Right, right. So you can look at that picture and you can say, oh, it's beautiful. And you can also connect it to the history and Tycho Brahe and look at the whole science of it and that's so you can look at this in different ways and it's meaningful yeah the it's uh, more than it's more than the facts it's more than what's really necessary if if we were in a different place in our galaxy like close to the center of the galaxy uh -huh. we probably couldn't look out and see this thing no no we wouldn't be able to see an, an object like that the the supernova you're talking about is on page 117 it's a full color it was taken by the chandra x-ray observatory it's a false color image of what was left of the exploded star that Bra observed in 1572, and the supernova is called SN 1572. Mm -hmm. And it, I have in the caption, it exploded the medieval belief in the immutability of the heavens. That's right. They thought everything out beyond the moon 
never changed. It yes. was like created by God. It was perfect, and it never changed. Uh-huh. And Tycho Brahe was willing to question that that idea. He was willing to verify. He had the concept of verifying from observations, mm-hmm. and he was frustrated that when he was a young man in his college years, there was there was no really good, accurate. Uh, table set of tables yes. to to observe the planets with. If you tried to look up when to see Jupiter, it wouldn't be accurate. Right. So he took on himself the the idea of coming up with a more accurate set of tables to observe the planets with, and this was a lifelong thing, and it wasn't completed until after he died. It was finally yeah. completed by Kepler. So he his he, and I know originally when he saw the supernova, he was <clears throat> working hard to try to determine. If that was under the moon, if that mm-hmm. was within the sphere of the, mm-hmm. the mutability of life below the moon. Right. Because everything below the moon in the medieval cosmology was subject to change, mm-hmm. as you said. So the the basic focus of his was this supernova above or below the moon. And then when he calculated it was above the moon, then, then the whole idea of the heavens being perfect and unchanging started to unravel. So that was, that was 15, the, he saw that in 1572. What's really interesting is that the last supernova, that was observed in our Milky Way galaxy mm-hmm. was observed by you know this who who observed the last supernova in our Milky Way? I don't remember. I stumped you. You didn't know this. This I, was in, I'm forgetting. It was Kepler. Ah, yeah, the SN1604, the last supernova. Oh, okay. In in uh, our galaxy was observed by Johannes Kepler. So the last two supernovas that have been observed in the Milky Way were from. Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. Oh, we good. have not seen a supernova <laughs> in the Milky Way. We've seen right. a lot outside the Milky Way, but uh-huh. none in the Milky Way. Actual supernova. Okay. Since 1604. We're right. O- we're overdue. We're 400 and some odd years ready for, right. to yeah. see another one in the. Of the, course, there was a supernova in 1987A, but that, that was, was outside. That was way outside our galaxy. Right, right. But what you have, again, <clears throat> this, this theme of pairing. And you, you you mentioned that Paul's chapter complements Luke's and Alan's chapter because all this fine tuning isn't just for carbon based life to th- to exist. It's 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 there for uh, uh, us to thrive. And then then you have uh, William Lane Craig's chapter where how did this all begin? And he goes into the he does a, a good job of talking about the 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 doctrine of creation ex nihilo, the God creating from nothing. Mm. And uh, so his chapter is, is very well written for for a wider audience, uh, explaining what creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing, uh, really means. And so he addresses that. And Dr. Craig has uh, engaged with uh, a couple of atheistic cosmologists, Dr. Lawrence Krauss and Dr. Sean Carroll. He has uh, debated these people and has talked about the philosophical as well as the scientific scientific implications of a secular cosmology. So we have... Uh, you know, we have Dr. Luke Barnes, who is a world-renowned expert on fine-tuning. We have mm-hmm. Dr. William Lane Craig, who is a Christian philosopher and Christian apologist. We have Mil- Melissa Kane Travis, who is an apologist and a Christian. I, I don't. She's she's branching out from just doing Christian apologetics. I know her uh, thesis at uh, Faulkner was uh, uh, diver- a little bit more diverse than just apologetic stuff. But we also have, uh, as I said, Dr. David Bradstreet. Uh, we have you. Uh, we have Terry Glaspie, the art, talking about the art. We have Michael Ward talking about Lewis's understanding of the term space versus the term heavens. And I love how Michael opens his chapter with the idea of, wouldn't it be weird to say, you know, our father who art in space? 
where <laughs> Jesus ascended into space or yeah. in the beginning God created the space and the earth you know and and he goes into the uh-huh. the implications of what what that word means empty space versus the heavens and when you look at some of the imagery that we have in our book and when you look at astronomy when you look at the stars in the sky it's hard to argue that space is the right description yeah so the, uh, it's a really good point the, the way he goes through that and dan i was thinking of one way you could kind of describe our book to people that aren't familiar with this uh you know there was a movie called god's not dead yes so th- this this book is kind of god's not dead and astronomy is kind of the idea he's yeah here's how the, the universe is not empty in the sense of right well what you were just talking about Back in the medieval time with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis loved the medieval model. And uh, the the reason he did, not so much because it was scientifically true, of course it wasn't, but what he admired about the, the, the medieval model was its emphasis on beauty, its emphasis on unity, mm-hmm. how the medievals saw the world holistically. Okay, their science was different. It was wrong. It was off on certain things. The planets didn't move in circles. There were no mm-hmm. crystal domes as we know it. But it wasn't so much that the science, but but for the beauty of it and how it could harmonize everything from the heavens into the earth. Everything was connected. So what we are trying to do, as you talked about earlier, is try to bring back the idea of the university. What is that? But it's two two Latin words, uni veritas, one truth. It all sort of fits together. But in the modern concept of the university, you have to go to the science building then you have to go to the philosophy building, and then you have to go to the literature building, and maybe either you go out onto the football field or the philosophy. But universities have all these different buildings, and rarely is there any intercommunication between various disciplines on the mm-hmm. campus. And if you mm-hmm. go to any modern campus today and you say, what is the one truth about the universe? There's, there's You get a variety of different answers. What is mm-hmm. truth? Truth doesn't exist. Truth is whatever you want to make it. Right. And there's no way to unify all the disparate and separate disciplines. And so what we're trying to do is bring that together. And I have a a little bit of a blurb from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. uh, where you have Elizabeth Bennet and this wealthy aristocratic Mr. Darcy. And the whole novel <laughs> is about, you know, the Bennets are country down-home folk, and, and so there's this relational tension between the two of them throughout the whole story, Pride, and prejudice, mm. you know, we are prideful and we are prejudiced. Our pride and our prejudice mm-hmm. uh, make us not see things as they ought to be seen. Right. They get in the way of our of seeing the world as it ought to be. Mm. So there's one scene where uh, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth are at a ball in Bath. Maybe it's in Bath. And uh, they're dancing. And as they're dancing, they're having a little dialogue. And so uh, Elizabeth, the character of Elizabeth, says to Mr. Darcy... I talked about the dance, and you ought to make some kind of remark on the size of the room or the numbers of couples. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I use that quote because I think it fits what we're doing. We have the beautiful, <laughs> smart, and witty, creative, uh, down-home Elizabeth Bennet, you know, and then we have mm-hmm. the aristocratic, smart, logical, rational, wealthy Mr. Darcy. So there's a marriage of science and reason, mm-hmm. of imagination, faith and imagination, heavens and the earth, mm-hmm. the, the theme of the dance. That's kind of what the book does. Yeah, yeah. the theme of the dance. And uh, so that's kind of, and then I go into a funny, more colloquial thing where I used to DJ. So I have a half a paragraph here about 
how I DJ'd weddings, and I'm not kidding. This, I, so I generalize, <laughs> but one of the songs I would always play yeah. at a wedding, and if you've ever been to a wedding with a DJ, you hear this song all the time, YMCA. It's it's kind of fun. Uh, you don't really listen to it any time else other than when you're <laughs> at a wedding, but the Village People <laughs> song. And so I'll play that, and a lot of times family members who aren't really known for, for dancing will get out on the floor and, and dance and do the YMCA thing or whatever. It's just fun when you get a bunch of people going. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the what inspires everybody else. It's like, look, Fred is dancing. Uncle Fred is dancing. I can't believe this. He's <laughs> Look at that. And that inspires everybody else. And then right. pretty soon the whole room's doing YMCA and it's just, yeah. it's just crazy. Mm. But I liken that you know, wedding dance, DJing a wedding to, to sort of the scientific process. One guy gets on the dance floor and takes a risk and the next guy gets out there and does it. And then pretty soon there's this wacky dance going on. And, and I think one of the things that your chapter does an excellent job of doing is showing, dispelling the idea that science is this uh, computer process that is logical lockstep and it never changes. Mm-hmm. I have this quote I want to read from uh, science writer Jim Baggett. He's describing the history and the process of science. He mm-hmm. says, Whenever historians examine the details of scientific discoveries, inevitably they find only confusion and muddle, vagueness and error, good fortune often pointing the way to right answers for the wrong reasons. Mm. Occasionally they find true genius. Theorizing involves a deeply human act of creativity. And this, like humor, doesn't fare well under any kind of rational analysis. (laughs) The knowledge that science can be profoundly messy on occasion, simply makes it more human and accessible, more Kirk oh, yeah. than Spock. Yeah, this yeah. May, this reminds me of some things about Kepler, because it's what you're getting at. Uh, Kepler was a, a believer, and he had a very strong conviction, Dan, that God had designed the universe with order and harmony. Mm. And in his early years, he wrote a book that was basically, uh, if you translate it from the Latin, it's sort of the harmony of the worlds. Yes. And uh, he had a very imaginative, creative concept about, uh, basically about the planets and the universe. Well, you know, over time, he eventually realized his concept in that book was wrong. And it didn't work. Uh huh. So, but his conviction about design was not the problem. It's that the design was not what he had expected. It it was different. It was a mathematical kind of order that he hadn't looked for and that no one expected. So his his the problem was not that he he believed in design of the universe. It was that he didn't know how to find it. Yeah. Yeah. So it took time, and he worked it out, and he figured out uh, three laws of planetary motion that are still useful to NASA. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one of the things I like about uh, uh, Brother Guy's chapter, you know, he so Jim Baggett, that quote I just read, talked about more Kirk than Spock. Spock, the, the, the reference is that Captain Kirk, James T. Kirk, was always kind of flying by the seat of his pants and doing little creative things and always had to engage on, on different levels of the encounters and the problems mm-hmm. that he had. Spock was like, that's not logical, right? Mm-hmm. It's just this linear, logical Vulcan right, thinking. Right. But one of the reasons I, I used the Jim Baggett <laughs> quote uh, about Kirk mm-hmm. was, like I said, when I, when I read everybody's essay, I was looking for things and ways to tie the whole story together. 
and Brother Guy talks about his encounter with William Shatner mm. in his chapter. He actually met the actor who played uh, Captain Kirk. Oh, interesting. And uh, yeah. he tells the story. Yeah. Uh, I won't spoil it. You'll have to read what that was like. So, so here's Captain Kirk encountering the Vatican astronomer, yeah. <laughs> a Jesuit priest <laughs> doing science, talking to uh, James T. Kirk, the actor yes. James T. Kirk. So, so that's in there. Yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah. You know, so you'll have to read what's, what that's all about. Um, but yeah, I think there's a wonderful, uh, you know, your story tells a human story. Paul's essay talks about human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan and, and, and Luke do a great job of breaking down the very difficult concept of fine-tuning, mm-hmm. uh, putting it into language yeah, that, in that fact, we can all Yeah, in fact, Dan, I, I would like to say this, this book does an exceptional job of making certain ideas like that understandable to people. Yeah. There's a lot of books on apologetics that a lot of people would find difficult to read. Yeah, and this is not... They're not going to say that too much about this book. Right. They're well, gonna it, like this. this is a good point to talk about, just briefly, what the book is not. Mm-hmm. So, so here's a couple of things that you're not going to find in the book. Um, while there's certainly philosophy and science, Paul and I tried to gear it toward uh, writing it in such a way that the concepts become digestible, mm-hmm. Even if you've never read on this any of these subjects at all, you could read each of these chapters independently and walk away with understanding something. Mm-hmm. And and so we encourage people that, that there's enough there for you to chew on. Uh, you know, it might be a little... I think the hardest science chapter would probably be uh, David Bradstreet's, but it's still very accessible because he's explaining a very difficult concept, binary stars, but he does it very well. You can still read it and get something from it. Um, Bill Craig's chapter is has got a lot of philosophy and cosmology in it. I think those are the two, probably in terms of the vernacular, mm-hmm. the hardest to read, but they're still written in such a way that you can walk away with, oh, okay, that's what that means. Okay, that's great. But we don't, um, it's not hardcore apologetics. So there's nothing wrong with apologetics, but there's not a lot of, um, what do I want to say, uh, in-shop lingo we try to translate concepts into everyday vernacular. Uh, that's That was one of the right. things. Right, and it's not really a book about the Big Bang. No. Uh, it's not a book about uh, controversies of, over origins in the book of Genesis and the Bible. No. Or, it's not that. No. We actually, um, I, think, I think one thing that impressed me the most is that there is a wide, diverse background of Christian denominations represented here. Mm-hmm. We have non-denominational folks. We have Baptists. Uh, we have Anglican, uh, Catholic. I'm a Presbyterian, and I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure I'm accounting for everyone there. But but we are focused on Psalm 19, mm-hmm. and so it's not a. So it's also not a polemic. We're not going after guns blazing. We're not going after atheism. We're not. Uh, we're not going. We're not saying what's wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. We're proactively showing you the 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 ground of what is good and right and true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the medievals saw a a synthesis of knowledge, and mm-hmm. so we're not polemical. We're not saying anti this, anti that, anti this, anti that. We're, I, more, we're more on the pro side. We're more on the pro side <clears throat> here. And so what we do. So if you take Psalm 19, there's two things in Psalm 19 that I think explain this well. The first six verses of Psalm 19 talk about God's revelation to us through what he has made, mm-hmm. primarily the heavens. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Their voice goes out into all the world. Right. The, the speech is poured forth every day, and we study it. And then the second half of Psalm 19 is more of God's, what they call special revelation, through his word, through his precepts, through the law, through scripture. So creation is a general revelation, and we, we pick up and emphasize the, the general revelation 
that that God reveals to us through the heavens primarily. And that's our focus. And it's a proactive focus. Yes, we are briefly talking about the secular ideas that are out there. Luke and mm-hmm. Alan's chapter start off with a quote by Dawkins, that, that Richard Dawkins, that says there's at bottom no purpose to the universe. Uh, we do we do present the secular ideology that pervades a lot of the modern imagination, but we're not spending chapters and chapters and chapters downgrading secular thinking. We're offering a holistic Christian perspective yeah. from the point of view of the glory of God. And mm-hmm. so we are all, we set aside our ecumenical, our, our uh, theological differences, whatever they may be, and we come together for this purpose, for the glory of God. And that's what Jesus says in, in John. He says, you know, when, when we are unified, God is glorified. You know, they will know us by our love for one another. So, uh, so it's not a polemic. It's not a book on, so if you're, if you're, uh, if you like to, explore the age question whether or not the universe is young or old we don't deal with that subject every person in the book has a different perspective i don't even know what everybody's perspective is but every chapter is the unique voice of the contributors paul and i didn't sit down and go well you have to have a yec view or an old earth view we did not make that a criteria every individual Mm -hmm. idea in each chapter is represented by that individual. That's right. So there's so we let the voice speak. If they are old, mm-hmm. we let them speak that. If they're young, mm-hmm. I don't even think that even comes up. So if you're young or old, that's not going to be a. This isn't going to be a book that gets into that. And we're not saying that controversy is bad. We're not saying that that discussion is wrong or. That yeah, was, it's just not our focus. Yeah, let me add one little point. There is a quote I make of Kepler, where he does point out he believed the Earth was. 6,000 years old. Yeah, he was young. But the reason I do that in my chapter is to give some insight into how he viewed the Bible. Yeah. I was looking for something from both about Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler Uh that gives some insight into how they viewed the Bible. And uh, that's in there uh, for both of them. It was hard to find something from Tycho Brahe about the Bible. He didn't say much. He didn't write much about the Bible. But I found one little gem about that supernova we were talking about, but I'm not going to give it away. Okay, yeah, you'll have to read the book. Read the book for that. Right. <laughs> so so we're not, we're not uh, I just want to make sure that when I say we didn't talk about the age controversy, uh, that that's not an important question. Uh, it's just not a, a position that you, so if there was a, it's just not a position you'll be able to put our book on. Yeah. Uh, it's just not a categorical issue for right, a book. Right. Um, so we talk about mathematics. We talk about C.S. Lewis. We talk about meteors and meteorites. We talk about planets and habitable zones. We talk about binary stars and black holes. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, Kepler and Bra. We talk about art and landscape painting with Terry Glaspie. We talk about C.S. Lewis and making space for faith. And Tolkien's creation story. And Holly does a wonderful job of talking yeah. about Tol- Tolkien's creation in the Silmarillion. And how understanding Tolkien's vision of creation can help us reappreciate, uh, reenchant, and reacquaint ourselves with our own creation. Then, uh, of, of course, we have Christian philosopher William Lane Craig talking about the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, or the creation from nothing. Alan Hainline, our friend, and uh, Dr. Luke Barnes from Australia talking about the cosmic coincidences of mm-hmm. fine tuning. And then we have Paul Gould talking about the philosophy of human flourishing. And that's important, too, because a lot of times, uh, skeptics who who call themselves humanists mm. will say that their primary concern is human flourishing. But in order to have an idea of human flourishing, you have to know what a human being is for. 
mm-hmm. you have to understand the purpose for which a human being exists. You can't mm-hmm. just willy-nilly define whatever purpose you want and call it human flourishing. There, mm-hmm. there's The only way a, a human can flourish is if a human being is doing and acting in accordance uh, with the purposes for which he or she was created. And that's what Paul talks about a little bit. Right, yeah. Uh, assuming that we are created in the image of God, then the human flourishing, true human flourishing, is our becoming more Christ-like, more like our creator as we grow. Yeah, I thought that was wonderful from Paul Gould. Yeah, and then I have an actual, I'm the only one in the book that got to write two chapters. Well, and if you call the uh, the index a third chapter, I got to do that. That was, the index, just as a side note, the index was uh, uh, about 50 hours of work, hand hand done. It was kind of crazy. Oh, it's a good index. But I have uh, a small concluding afterward where I talk about light pollution and how can you, where do you start? So there's a big question. So this, you, you finish the book. And you're like, okay, well, what do I do about this? Well, um, start to take notice. Uh, and I, I quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson at the, in my end of the chapter. And he talks about the light pollution in New York City. And he says, uh, he says, I never, I have never, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. I have never in my life seen the Milky Way galaxy from within the city limits of New York City. Mm. And so... He talks about, and then he concludes, he's like, no wonder ancient peoples shared a culture of sky lore, because, you know, they didn't have light pollution. Whereas modern peoples, who know nothing of the night sky, instead share a culture of evening TV. Mm. So I encourage people, I say, the way to reacquaint yourself, and fasc- you know, we're fascinated when you, when you, we are a culture fascinated with celebrities, other mm-hmm. kinds of stars, Dancing mm-hmm. with the Stars, the Hollywood Walk of Stars, movies. We know all the star names of all the movies and televisions that are out there, uh, celebrities and whatnot, uh, but we know hardly know anything about the night sky, and these stars have been around for you know who knows how long. Um, but I say, I, I kind of encourage you, turn off the TV, turn off the screen, go make an effort to find some dark skies, start familiarizing yourself with a few names. I recommend the, mm-hmm. the, the software program Stellarium for your laptop, mm-hmm. and you can have a model of the sky over your head in your backyard or wherever you go. You can start to learn star names. You can start to see star patterns. You can start to recognize the beauty in the universe and contemplate. Take time. The part of human flourishing is to contemplate the beauty that God has given us in creation. That's right. And we've just not been able to do that either because of the city lights, where we live, light pollution, uh, lack of interest. Uh, so my last four, my last chapter in, uh, in gives you a couple of different ways in which you can get started. Start one place. Start with one star mm-hmm. and say, ooh, what's that star? And learn all about it. And that's what, uh, and I say that that's what led the wise men to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. We don't really know what that star was. It certainly didn't behave like a regular star. Right. But Matthew uses that language. One star led the wise men to Jesus. And I think, so my analogy, my poetic analogy is that one star, uh, let that one star, whatever it is, Betelgeuse, Rigel, uh, Aldebaran, or whatever, pick out a star. Let the one star begin to renew your mind, metanoia, change your mind about the nature of God and creation and your place within it, like David did in Psalm 8. When I look at the sun and the moon, when I look at the moon and the stars, the works of your fingers, Hmm. what is man that you're mindful of him? Mm -hmm. And there seems to be, in the universe, a built-in, I don't know, how would you call it? Something built into the universe that makes us question what it is and our place within it. And so we hope our book reorients you to the real story of the cosmos the real story of the cosmos so it's been a good chat wayne yeah and it's been a really fun process it was like two years making this thing from start to finish 
and uh, kind of funny. It started really with you and I chatting in Lee and Rebecca's living room, and then it just it turned that it turned into a podcast, <laughs> and then and then it just yeah. I remember at one point I thought, you mean we're really going to do this? Yeah, yeah. We're, this I'm, is it, just a crazy it, idea. This is a crazy idea, and, uh, and here but, we are, two years later almost. But it's come together really nicely. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, so the book there, there's a lot in here in this for different people. I think so. It will there, it will appeal to people for different reasons, and it has a variety of things in, in the chapters. Yeah, and people have asked me what uh, what level of reading would this be, and I say if you you could you could get away with giving this to, you know, really sharp high school kids, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade um, kids just beginning college. Yeah, uh, I think middle school kids would understand most could, of it. They, there's there's enough there that you could get it down to a middle schooler and and they could grasp something but there's also enough there that if you're if you're not even familiar with the topics of astronomy cosmology and all that stuff you could still walk away from something with this uh it's it's there's so many levels at which this is accessible to people um that that you might be able to yeah. set aside a few ideas and say well I don't get that I'll come back to it but there's enough there that you can get through the book and go I really learned something we really tried to to take that tack yeah there's a lot of people that wouldn't wouldn't think I want to go out and buy an astronomy book. Yeah, but but they would like this. Yeah, it's more. Uh, yeah. I like what you said uh, earlier. It's it's a human approach. Right. It, it brings it down, and I mm -hmm. think to, to to give a nod to Carl Sagan, who got my interest in astronomy when I was twelve. To give a nod to him, Sagan w was a gifted communicator who really did a wonderful job of being able to connect. Mm -hmm. the heavens to the earth i mean the, the episodes of cosmos are still watched and you know it was the most widely watched pbs series in do, in its documentary history mm -hmm. um and he was a gifted science communicator yeah everybody talks about carl sagan who's had any interest in science um but i don't think the church has really had a kind of response to cosmos ever since that came out and so we're kind of hoping that this can redress that and give a christian view a holistic worldview a christian worldview of not just the heavens, but how the heavens affect and impact us here on the earth. And so it's a yeah. apologetics, philosophy, history, art. Um, it's just, it's... It it's, kind of blurs the categories. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. It, and I will, I will say this in all seriousness, it's old school. It's, uh -huh. it's a medieval way of looking at the universe in terms of a uni veritas, a one truth. This yeah. is a very old way of looking at things. How do they fit together? And it still fits for us today. It sure does. It sure does. Well, Wayne, this has been, we've been threatening to do a podcast about the book now for quite that's, some time. That's right. We've and, talked uh, about it before, but it's coming soon. Yes. July 16th. What is special about July 16th? It is uh, two things. Number one, our book will be released officially. Yes. And number two, it just so happens to coincide with the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's launch. Now, they landed yeah. on the moon on July 20th, but yeah. they launched on July 16th right. from Florida, and we're launching along with that anniversary. Not that Apollo or NASA is sponsoring us. It just so happened that... Yeah, NASA doesn't know about the no, book. No, no. Well, hopefully they will. But, hopefully uh, they'll find out. Yeah, I want to get a book into the gift shop at the Johnson Space Center. That would be really cool. That would be cool. Um, but yeah, we are launching, literally, on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, uh -huh. uh, July 16th. And so that's really cool. But... Even before the 16th, Wayne, one more thing before we go. If you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on July 9th, uh, we are having a pre-launch book release to where I think you'll be there. Yes. I will be there, so you can come meet Wayne and I. Uh, Melissa Kane Travis will be there. Dr. Miss Melissa Kane Travis will be there. Luke Barnes, Dr. Luke Barnes will be there. 
He will be our keynote speaker along with Alan. So it will be you, me, Alan, Luke, and Melissa uh, there to sign books, uh, to take Q, and we're going to have a little Q&A, but each of us are going to have some time to present our chapters to people. Uh, it's going to be in Rockwall, and uh, I will have a link to the description of the event uh, below. Uh, Discovery Institute here in Dallas has uh, put the sponsorship on it. Well, they've, they've, they've advertised it for us. They're not officially sponsoring it. Uh, we're sort of putting this on ourselves, but uh, we will sign books. Uh, we will have a chit-chat. It, it will be a great time. That's July 9th at 645 at uh, Lake Point Church in Rockwell, Texas. If you're anywhere near the area, come on by. It's free and open to the public. Yes. So be there if you're within reach of that. So And we will sign a book, shake your hand, and um, tell you what we know about the about the universe. Okay. And about yeah. Jesus. And about Jesus, which is really... And that, so that's about a week. That, that date is a week before the book is yeah, released. Yeah, one week before the book. It's the Tuesday night, uh, July yeah. the 9th. And uh, there'll be a link in the description below here for you to uh, to click on and find out more information about that. And we'll put a link to the website for the book. Uh, I'm on Twitter. You have a website. Um, and you can get all of that through our podcast and everything. So, Wayne, it's been a, I think it's been a great episode. We've knocked this good. out. We finally got this down. We've been wanting to do this for a while now. And uh, so next month, uh, we are going to do our podcast for next month. It's going to be what? On Apollo 11. We are going to do something special for the uh, 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. So that'll... We we did one on Apollo 8, yes. and that was a very popular program. And, that was really uh, cool, yeah. We're going to kind of do something to kind of follow up from that. Yep. All right. So, Wayne, thanks for joining me again today. It was great. And we will see you next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens.